totally scary that. Well, this is always very important to actually enter the stone circle and stop. stop. Talk about it. Just commune. Quite silently. I really did feel that I could do it. There was something about the wall that pulled me towards it. So before I ever even, even came to the crag, I knew that it was something that, that I'd eventually do. He ranted and raved and ranted and raved about this painting on his route. Indian face this time of day looks looks really beautiful. Sitting here, I've got a mixture of sadness and complete contentment. The right-hand streak is actually the Indian face. That climb from the bottom to the top, really. Climbing rock to me is like food. That's the altarpiece, British climbing. The focal point of that process to anybody that wants to be involved with the rock is this cliff. And on this cliff, it is this wall. And on this wall, it is Indian face. Stop. Talk about it. Just commune quite silently. It's pretty frightening, isn't it? <laughs> Johnny Dozen, Johnny Redhead. Johnny Redhead is the kind of uh, traditionalist climber. It's an ancient thing, I think. I mean, rock climbing as a language is, is just a baby. I relate it to a martial art. Johnny Dozen is the sort of young radical that's come onto the scene ten years he's younger. Most of the process of climbing, dangerous climbs, has nothing to do with rock at all. It has a great deal more to do with concentration. When a martial artist gets very powerful, that external approach somehow has to go. Instead of punching out aggressively, <laughs> it's, it's a very soft internal approach, it's very soft and gentle. And I think when the rock climber understands that process, he'll have no need to touch rock. He won't need to climb. You know, A new language will be born. Johnny Dawes and Johnny Redhead have both got strong association with the cloggy. They're both done some fairly frightening routes that I certainly wouldn't want to go anywhere near, particularly on that crag. Imagine having different panels of inclined glass in a room, and you walk in, you, you walk around, you say, I can stand on that one without my foot slipping. I can stand on that one. I can stand on that one combined with that one over there because they're at different angles. That sucks. That, that is Indian face. You see that? But I couldn't stand on that one there. Uh, that would have killed me. If you make the wrong decision about that on the climb, it can kill you. I don't want to knock Johnny too much. I think, you know, I think he's a very fine climber. I like him a lot as a character. You know, the climbing world needs characters like that. Offbeat and serious and a little bit lethal, a little bit mad. Fear can be a block, especially extreme fear. But it can also be a motivator in the sense that if you have your back against the wall, you have to do something. And sometimes it brings the best out in people. I've never climbed to die. You know, I've climbed to be on the edge. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's not the idea. 
for me. I mean, for many people it is to actually touch that stuff. That's all they get. That's not enough for me. That could never be enough. And that's just the beginning. This is, uh, this is the footpath, this is time-served stuff, this, what we're treading. You know, this, the, the Joe Browns and Willens and all the great epics that have gone on on Cloggy. Paradoxically enough, a climber who climbs the face of Clogwin Dur RV, as he climbs upward, is actually climbing backwards deep into the past, 460 million years into the past, in fact. The Indian face of the climb is, is uh, in the middle of the left-hand buttress, the east buttress and it's on the right-hand side of the middle face, which is called the Great Wall. At that time, of course, Wales bore no resemblance to the Wales we know now. It was covered by a sea, and out of the sea there were volcanic peaks, and from time to time these peaks erupted, sometimes with devastating effect. Each rock is like a, a 3D fax from something that happened millions of years ago. The eruptive cloud of hot gas, rock and molten lava spreads over an enormous distance and then settles to the ground rather rapidly and it fuses to form a solid rock layer which is extremely homogeneous. Today I've got a richer feeling for the crag than I have ever had before because I've got no accomplishment-minded feeling for it. I've also moved on in achievement terms from Indian face. It's something which is now ten years behind in my life. I look up at it and I just have this incredible feeling of respect for this crag because it just makes you feel incredibly full of hope and excitement. To talk about Indian Face, I had to talk about what was going on in my mind at the time. In North Wales, I'd spent the whole summer wanting to do the climb. It had rained virtually every day. And when I had come up to try and climb it when it was dry, it had been wet you walk up and down the track and I would say the one place where you, you thought about the route to the exclusion of all other things is, is on the track and it's amazing how what happens when you're walking on the track relates to what you're thinking in your mind if you're thinking about how dangerous pulling over the overlap is and you kick a rock you immediately make that into an omen standing here once there's a bit of a noise coming down from it. I just looked up and there's a sheep falling from the very top with its feet down all the way, not tumbling or turning. Just a straight fall all the way down, bleating. And it just ploughed into the earth and its legs just went straight up. Talk about it. Talk about like four poles sticking up from this sheep. Talk about it. Talk about it. it was carted away and it was et. <laughs> We all have a need for some element of stimulation and novelty in our lives. It's part of human nature, it's partly genetically endowed, and it, it has to do, I think, with the need really to gain a degree of competence in dealing with our environment. I was aware of the ritual basis of uh, the language of ascent from a quite an early age through climbing on trees. I think I was just given space to explore without my parents screaming, get down, you know, or, get back or you'll hurt yourself. You know, I mean, some of the moves climbing on beech trees when I was a, a youth are some of the most memorable moves I can remember, you know, live things, 
pudenda against pudenda. It's a very sort of marvellous feeling. You pick up uh, a respect and understanding for the rock, and because it's the outer surface of the rock, it's like stroking the skin of, of an organic mass of a creature, something that's being created. If you go back to the times when we all led lives which posed real risk merely to survive and we had the choices of running away or facing up to our fears, it was healthier for us and our likelihood of survival was much enhanced if we learned to face up to our fears rather than to run away from them. It's the whole package that's important. You know, it's not just the rock, is it? It's the cloud, it's the situation, it's the lake, it's everything. It's the crows, it's the sheep falling through the air. You know, it's that 70-foot fall, it's the, I take in, climb when you're ready. You know, it's, watch me. That would have killed me. Climbing rock to me is like food. And it's only when I haven't done it for a while and come back and do it that I realise that it is food. I just become alienated. Things that are not important to me become important to me because I'm immersed in them. There's a drip, drip, drip of responsibility, of things that are necessary but are not important. That would have killed me. I was living in Hull and, quite frankly, I was just bored with the flatlands and I thought I'll have a little teeter on it to see how it feels uh, so I started soloing the cooling tower disused cooling tower and uh, it starts off as a slab it kind of leads you on it steepens up a little bit so you whew, should I go down now or should I no I've got to go on damn it that's why I'm here who knows what's at the top in fact, the idea was to walk around the top all the way around and come back down it started to overhang. I was getting quite pumped, so I had to go on. I couldn't come down. So I got to the top, and all there is on the top is a, a rim, a very thin, tiny rim, a 12-inch wide. And I, I did stand up, and um, I looked inside. Right, And all you could see was a black slab going into a void. I couldn't see anything. And turning round at my heels, poking over the edge of the rim, there was an overhang going into a white slab and I was getting an updraft and I started to sway with the updraft and, you know, it felt so beautiful. <laughs> That's a crazy thing to think. Uh, but, it, no, it felt so beautiful, I just wanted to go with that sway. But um, God stopped me. Again, not my time. My time hadn't come. So... Uh, I got down on all fours <laughs> and I didn't walk, I didn't walk around it. You spend hours and hours thinking about the climb. Small steel nuts, they're quite useful for different placements. They come in different shapes and sizes. And slings, and then you have descenders. You remember the things that you've learnt from abseiling down the climb. And then we have belay devices. Struget carabiners. And two ropes. You, you draw diagrams of how you're going to go about the climb, where you imagine you might get out of control and what you're going to do when you do go out of control. That's all you need. But don't trust it. Don't trust any of it. You don't psych up. 
the, the whole nature of psyching up is uh, like before a fight or something like that. You have to psych down, you have to focus and let all the ripples of thoughts in your mind settle themselves down. It's a very, very mechanical process, and to do that you have to imagine the feeling of being on the climb. So before you even start doing the climb, you have all the fear and all the pain of that climb is already accepted within you. It's a bit of a myth, this route. In order to do technical moves, you have to really feel the holds. You only do that if the boots are really tight. Like skins. But just contemplate the line. Good edging, very firm, supportive. Very painful. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> the bottom line is, with, with clog is, you arrive here and all those ideas, an hour and a half of walking cleanses them all out of you. And you arrive at the bottom of the clag, you look up, and if it doesn't feel right, you just do not put your boots on. piece that I wrote for an article, an excerpt of which is published in the guidebook for the area. Imagine the wall. It's a random woven wire mesh, tilted, so that it steepens towards the top. At the base of the wall, the two thick cables disappear in the turf. Lights in the town flicker as you touch the rock. Each move forms an electric circuit between your hands, you see. As you move, you worry about the outcome of that move. Tension at present resides in a dull Dinorwick generator hum. The gear is poor, and a bad mistake could mean a death jolt full across the heart. You, you, you get a hold, and you move up to the next hold, and if you're not sure what you're trying to do, which, even though you practice certain parts of the climb, you don't remember everything at all. It's uh, 150 foot high, and all you need to do is move your foot in a slightly different position, and all the rocks completely metamorphose every time you move at all. When doubt begins to creep in, well then, in some ways, that's what it's all about. That's the language that you deal with. And that's what you have to contend with. That's the interesting bit. That's the gnarly bit. That's the manic bit. That's when she's saying, hey, hey, the arrogant get flicked off. <laughs> You're out of here. <laughs> Nature doesn't like the arrogance of that. You just remember being lost in a sea of, of holds. It's when you're dreaming off and you can't, it's very hard to explain these things, isn't it? The other day I felt some pain in my toe, so I just paid attention to it and thought where it came from and thought, I'll just reduce that like it was a button and I concentrated on that feeling and reduced it. Endorphins only came onto the scene about 25 years ago and this produced enormous excitement because it wasn't realised till then that we ourselves produce actually our own painkillers. Runners sometimes run on regardless, even though they've hurt themselves. And that's partly probably because the endorphins that are released reduce the pain. And it's only later, when the whole situation is over, that they realise how badly hurt they are. You feel like the rock's climbing you as much as you're climbing the rock. For one thing, you don't necessarily feel like you're moving up. You can just as easily feel like the rock's moving down. The best climbing that I've done is actually the climbing that I can't remember. That's when I know that the climbing has gone right. Very smoothly, very instinctively, you've moved through and you've forgotten it. 
And in some ways, painting is a little bit like that. It's a very similar process. You know, you can actually do a little bit of painting. You could be struggling. Yes, you could be working with a process and technique and not coming right, and suddenly you've done a section of painting and you don't know what you've done, but it's worked. But I don't think much good comes from subjectivity. That's when you're struggling, that's when you're sketching, that's when you're frantically jumping from hold to hold and trying to get something out of it. The mental process one has to go through before any sort of feat probably varies with different people, and it's surprising how some people can tell you a lot about their feelings and their preparation before, and others can't, or others develop techniques which sometimes work and sometimes don't. On a purely bodily level, very few activities involve coordination of your whole body. And people forget, actually, what the diameter of their wingspan is. They forget what the distance is between their left foot and their right arm. They might know it because it's on their passport, but they don't feel it. And it gets to the point where if something happens and you trip up, you don't feel any fear whatsoever because you know that that gear of slowing it down just clicks straight in because you've cleared away a lot of the decision-making involved in that. There's no longer any decision-making. Your body does it for itself. To control that fear, that doubt, is to actually relax and go with that, to actually become the rock, relax to such an extent that you're about to fall off, but you're not. If you reach up and, and get a hold and it feels worse than you think, you check whether it's the hold that you thought you wanted to get, because sometimes you can use a hold that's not the right one. You might chalk your hands up so the hold feels more secure, or you might literally just shut your brain off if you just allow yourself to tick over and do whatever needs to be done, your, your body does it for you. But um, it requires a, a trust because sometimes you, you suddenly wake up in situations and you start to lose control. But you think of what you're going to have for supper. You take little rests and holidays on the route where you take a 20 seconds off and you're just thinking about something totally different and you think, my God, I'm still here. And you go, right, OK. And then you, you just sort of wait, and then you find yourself moving. Like any sort of survival situation, your brain short circuits all the time. And those short circuits are directly related to the way the holes are wired up together. If you get two that feel bad, and you've done the move wrong, you get an immediate psychological feeling inside you of coldness, and you feel like you're about to be spat off the rock. Taking one hold for each hand. And as you pump, as you tire in one hand, you let go with the other, feel the energy flow through. Recover. Sort the breathing out. Relax. Move back. Feel the energy go through. Let go. Energy's gone right through to the other side. Balance is now reversed. This way, you can completely recover, which is quite useful on a very serious climb, where you can't just jump off. And there's a great amount of doubt. 
And if you really relax and feel like you really want to be there, then your body slumps into the rock and you get pulled into the rock. And Indian face is particularly like that because the holds are mostly vertical holds. They're not horizontal holds. So you're not hanging, you're bridging across your feet on either side, pushing outwards rather than your feet pushing downwards. Relax. The situation is very scary. It's a way of being in control of the energy of the rock. It's breathing. You become part of it. You hear your breath change, your breathing change. It starts to go syncopated and out of rhythm. And then you, you literally develop different gears and you run through them. You might have 12 gears where you go... And then you go... And then you go... you just do all these different things purely as distraction. And as you come to the end of your set of gears and nothing's happened to make you be able to move up or get some gear in or move down or chalk up, and you're still in the same situation, which happens maybe 20 times in the Indian face, because although it's only 150 foot high, there's a lot of climb on it. It weaves enormously. To get the gear in, you do different moves than you do to do the climbing. And to chalk up, you might swap three times on a hold. So you, you might do 400 moves on the climb. You've also got compromises between the tightness of your boots and how much grip you can generate from your shoe to how painful your foot feels and how much you can actually feel your boot on the hold. So you, when you're lacing up your boot, you're assessing these things. And that comes to haunt you if you've done it wrong. If the wind catches your chalk bag and blows the chalk upside down and spews all the chalk out, you're suddenly in a situation where you can't chalk up with impunity. You might have the knot for your chalk bag around the wrong part of your body. So when you try and move your chalk bag, you can't get it round because you're facing one direction. You can't get to it. You might drop some carabiners so you can't clip into the piece that you need. There's a lot of things that can kill you. hundred foot up, out above the last gear, I'm faced with the first of the hardest moves. My anxiety has made me enter the moves before reflection, and the rock is all in the wrong place. My body feels heavy and lumpy. I slapped out right, a move that should be static, and was committed to the crux. It's not as if one is not afraid of falling. I think that element of doubt is a very important part of climbing. The motion startling me like a car unexpectedly in gear, in a crowded parking lot. I swarm through the roundness of the bulge to a crank on a brittle spike for a cluster of three crystals on the right, each finger crucial and separate like the keys for a piano chord. There's a three-finger configuration, master's wall. Trying to relax, head on the rock, eyes closed. Realisation that if you just lifted one finger slightly, you're gone. I changed feet three times to rest my lower legs, each time having to jump my foot out to put my other in. Finger holds are too poor to hang on should the toes catch on each other. With a 70-foot fall that I took on Great Wall, and I wasn't too sure if 
the wall was climbable. The fall was a major part of the route. To me, it was, it was a release from treatment. John Redhead, when I first came to Wales, was the climber that inspired me. His, his climbs like Barbarossa, The Bells, The Bells, Tormented Ejaculation, which is the name of the, the unfinished project on Cloggy's Great Wall, which climbs the first 70 foot of Indian face. Those were the things that inspired me to climb. In those days, there was no sticky boots, so we had resin that would rub it in the sole of the boot to enable more friction. And the resin was wearing off the boots, so the friction was getting <laughs> worse. The boots were actually sliding off the holds, so you had to get to the next hold quick before the foot came off. It was that kind of climbing. Unsure that you could actually climb, unable to down-climb, with very little in the way of protection. I was eyeballing a tiny crack about 80 or 90 feet up, trying to put a small RP in a crack for some protection, um, feeling my right foot sliding off the holes, and I thought I could just get the gear in, put the rope in, and it might just take my weight. But unfortunately, or fortunately, should you look at it, it didn't work that way. Take! My foot shot off, and uh, she flicked me off the rock and fell cartwheeling down the face quite a long way, aiming for the scree. The ground's only a second away when you're 90 feet up, so it can't be a big wall. But I'm not held further down, which was quite surprising. Keith, who was holding my ropes, was quite amazed that I'd actually survived, so he said I should go straight back up, which uh, <laughs> amazing enthusiasm. So I did. So I climbed back up, got even higher this time, and then uh, got completely stuck and had to jump for an abseil rope. I was very, very happy when Neil and Nick did the climb. Neil Gresham's situation was that his foot started to shake involuntarily and betray him on the top move, and he was facing the biggest fall on the route, which is an 80-foot fall. After 80 foot, the rope will come tight on a nut, which is the size of two match heads. It's in the rock, but the rock is sort of very solid but quite snappable. He probably would have died if it had come off. And his foot was shaking so much that he had to lean into the rock and then he had to get his other foot up. And to do that, he had to actually jab his foot up onto this hold. And he jabbed the foot up and it just got on on the, on the last, last moment. These people had the same basic feelings of intensity on that wall that John Redhead has. They've achieved a higher level of difficulty, but John's original voyages on the wall were voyaging to new territory. They were principally different, and that's where I'll give John the respect that he is due. And that's why he was, he, he was such an amazing inspiration to me at the time. A flake came away on the Indian face. Came back again a few weeks after that. Tried again and again a few times. No epics, and he eventually placed a bolt which is about 90 feet up. Uh, that's as far as I got as regards to that kind of climbing. The bolt that I placed is uh, another 10 feet further on, but on the line of the Indian face, which continues as for Master's Wall. Between the two wet streaks, you can actually see where the flake has been pulled away. There's a small flake on the climb, and using a very small peg... I tapped this into a recess twice to seat it, and this acted more like a nut than an actual peg. 
Now, I could see that there was a crack further in that you could hammer it further into, but I was nervous about that because I thought this could take the flake off. Johnny had smashed the peg behind and the ice had moved in, uh, expanded, expanded the flake. Now, John Redhead abseiled down the route sometime after. Next year, I'm cleaning the line. And he said that Freeze Thor had taken the rock off. And the flake came away in my arms. The flake came off, and John Redhead still got the flake. The mere fact that he claims the flake for his own is uh, ridiculous. So I brought it down. Brought it down to my studio in Clamberis, as good cloggy rock should be. There's a bit of a ritual involved in carrying it back. That's where the peg had been smashed, at the back of it, gone through. As you can see, it's rotten rock. As all the flakes are on cloggy, it's rotten. He then got acrylic paint, which is a completely man-made contraption, which is designed for ease of putting on, to use one of the things that he's constantly going on about. On the brown scathing scar, I painted the hunt. This is the shape. Just 90 feet up, acrylic on rock, and it depicts climbers in conflict. And he paints this, this thing's supposed to be like, like a, a Bayer hunting painting or something. Two people have seen it. One is dead, the other has gone mad. What can I say? Any damage to the rock is really a serious point. To my mind, if you can harm the rock, you can harm anything else of value. The relationship went on a slider since the painting appeared upon Great Wall. It should have been just the opposite as far as I'm concerned. It should have brought us together in some ways. Johnny, Johnny took it the other way. He felt very challenged and, and uptight and guilty over the style of ascent. I think was what it was. Guilty. Set himself up big grade. Not totally honest. And that's why he was thrashing around. As things emerged between me and John, I just developed less and less respect for his word. He ranted and raved and ranted and raved about this painting on his route. And then I pulled the flake off and, you know, he's a demented man for a long time. You know, I'm glad that he calmed down and scraped it off. I hope that he learnt something from it. But perhaps not. I mean, Johnny's a climber. Very fine climber. One of the best climbers. And that's what Johnny does. That's not what I do. We're different. The real shame is that John can't accept that other people are special too. John thinks he's special. Well, a lot of other people are special too, John. There is no resting. I must go and climb for the top. I swarm up towards the sunlight, gasping for air. A fall now fatal. The automaton steps back through, wobbling for giving its all. I grasp a large side pull and tube upward. The rope's dangling now uselessly from my waist. Indian face is climbed. There's nothing better than on the last move you get a side hold which goes right up, I don't know whether you have a massage somebody's back and you can get your hand right behind their armpit 
and you keep wiggling it until the muscle relaxes. You can get your hand right up behind their shoulder and it's got a weird feeling. Well, in a way, the last move is like putting your left hand up the right shoulder blade of somebody and you pull that down and right over the top of your body, over towards the left, you can grab this huge jug. This jug's right on the apex of the whole face. The face cuts away in a big scoop beneath you and you can hang there for ages. So you're still on the route, but you're safe when you know you're going to be okay. You can just hang there and look between your feet and just look down at the runner, which you've not thought about for ages. And the affirmation that you're alive is something that you don't get from any other part of your life. And the fact that you put yourself in that situation and that you were never suicidally inclined, you were there because you loved the experience of going that close to the things that make us human. The Indian face was actually top-roped and the gear was pre-placed. They didn't like the, the idea of the bolt, but they would top-rope and pre-place little nuts in the crack. And the Indian face was eventually climbed using those tactics, which, as far as I'm concerned, is quite shoddy. There's two types of learning. There's experience and there's proxy knowledge. But you can't form knowledge that you can trust unless you have an experience of something. And climbing something like Indian Face, which doesn't really need a name at all, in, in some ways it'd be nice not to have a name for it, makes you... It's just too difficult a challenge. I never climbed the Indian Face, no. And since Johnny top-roped and all that furor about all that, you know, I've never been back. As far as I got, I'm quite pleased with what I did. I think I achieved more than actually climbing the Indian face. Yeah. But the day will come when someone will actually come along and climb these routes on site, and that'll put what's gone on in perspective. What's gone on is ego, and it's a little bit shoddy, and uh, I think it damages the rock. I think for those who have attained the level of self-actualization, they may reach a point where they don't need to do whatever it is they're doing very often. It also then creates in them an almost spiritual-like degree of satisfaction, which may spill over into other pursuits. It's like a big wash of emotion that comes up the valley and just rushes into you. You can't believe what you've just done because you can actually feel that it's never happened in the world before. It'd be quite easy to argue that it comes from its position in climbing history, that you become euphoric, or that it's biochemical, that you get the feeling because it's release of endorphins, because you're elated from an hour's exercise. But when it happens, there's a feeling of newness, as if you've put a pin in a bubble, and then the bubbles produce something. You feel like there's a new experience available for other people. I would expect that after the sense of achievement and the high, or whatever we like to call it, there would actually be a rebound feeling of depression and loss, and something else will have to be put in its place. Because on the whole, people need an object, they need an aim, 
and once that aim has been achieved, another aim needs to take its place. I can remember when I came down off the crag, though, the pub really feeding off the energy that I'd got inside me. And uh, a lot of relief from people that, that cared about me at the time. On the face of it, it's completely mad activity. But life is fatal by definition. And it's a case of how much life you, you pack into the intervening period. I'm sure Johnny, the kind of climbing that he's done, you know, that bold, serious, you know, psychotic kind of climbing, pushing it out, pushing out time and time and time again, stems from a deep-seated hopelessness about life. I'm not hopeless about life. I'm full of joy about life. I always have been. <laughs> climbing doesn't do that for me. I mean, it could never be an escape. I just remember um, the feeling of release. Now I just look up at the face and it just makes me feel a very happy person. The real thing is being out there amongst the trees, knowing, not, as, not looking at the landscape as a postcard, not feeling wonder at the landscape and the clouds and the light and the hills and how marvellous it all is. That's only marvellous and good and truthful and potent when you are aware of something creeping up behind you and about to pounce on your back. That's when it becomes real. The climbing tries to simulate that. It doesn't do it. It's a bit of a fake. Now and again in climbing, you get that feeling of the lion about to pull you from behind. You get that bit of a feeling, but it's not real. The real thing's still out there. If you come up here to find stuff like that, then you are escaping. You only get the wildness where there's some kind of crust, when there's some kind of concrete, some cobbles or tarmac, you know, cars and buildings that actually dilute the rock underfoot. Well, this is always very important to actually enter the stone circle and stop. Talk about it. Just commune. Quite silently. Quite silently. Quite silently. Quite silently. Quite silently. It's an interesting idea that certain stones become sacred. Generations pass, but the stone remains the same. And maybe it's somehow connected with our own mortality. Stone symbolises something which lies beyond the human lifespan. Did a serious route on the cliff. We'd enter the stone circle and we'd, uh, and we'd just contemplate the line. We'd just contemplate the moves and the situation and the aura and then we'd walk down to the sanctuary down there, little miner's hut, and then we'd get prepared for the ascent, and then, and then we're in. Well, this is always very important to actually enter the stone circle and stop, and you can forget about all that nonsense that you've come through, like Clamberis and the trains and the farming that's upset you so much on the way up and all, all that nonsense with the tourists and the postcards. And, and it's like you've arrived in this little dell and you're facing and touching something very sacred and something very ancient and special. That piece of rock has not been made by man. We know that if we get a feeling from it, that that feeling has its ground in an implicate order. And this is because we pick these things up at a very deep level and we need these things to express ourselves and different muses that we have. One of my muses is movement on rock. I go back into the studio and what I get out of the climb is released on canvas. And to me, that is much, much, much more real. It's saying something. 
just the spirit speaking, using that for something creative to move on from, to bring about more than just now, to bring about more than just a climb, which is pretty banal in its own right. I think I'm finally um, coming to terms with, with what I did and why I did it. It's quite often difficult to know what motivates you to do one thing rather than another. And in doing that climb, a lot of doubts that I had about myself were dispelled. And my ability to know that I could achieve the things that my dreams were made of is there. And it's there for anybody that dreams long and hard enough. I'm absolutely adamant about that. This is ancient stuff, this. Yeah. The crows know that. I mean, look, look at them rejoicing then. Yeah. I don't think climbers rejoice like that. They don't do it. There's a certain freedom that brings them up to a place like this, but they're not flying with the crow. They're not picking amongst the bones as the crow does and knows what that is. They're not doing that. Coming here because there's a, there's a bloody guidebook to the place. 